Angela Merkel has been the Chancellor of Germany for almost 16 years. She'll retire later this year. Uh, she is well-respected on the international scene. Like any politician, she's had her fair uh, share of failures and successes, as well as criticism and praise. Uh, but as I was reading about her not too long ago, there was some things about her that caught my attention. Uh, she's very down-to-earth. Uh, even though she has a doctorate in quantum chemistry, and I don't even know what that means, she's, she's ridiculously smart, she prefers to live in the same apartment that she and her husband lived in before she was elected to office in 2005. It's just a public apartment, and she lives there. It's a modest place. She could live in the German equivalent of the White House, which is actually eight times larger than the White House and has living quarters built into it for her, but she prefers to live among the people. Uh, she also goes shopping for her own groceries. Can you imagine other world leaders showing up at your neighborhood grocery store to get milk and eggs, and she pays in cash? Uh, she makes her own breakfast every morning, and she talks about how he, she and her husband split the household chores. She doesn't have servants doing those kinds of things. She's vacuuming the floor and cleaning the toilets just like you and me. Uh, she was once asked why she wears the same clothes all the time, and she says it's because I'm a government employee and not a model. She just seems down to earth, like there's a humility about her. Usually when you think of world leaders, you think of them coming out of their government buildings in their suits and surrounded by security agents and getting into their black SUVs or their private helicopters and flying off wherever it is. And, and the people are on the other side of the fence and maybe they'll wave as they go by. But there's something about this world leader who is living amongst the people as a normal citizen of the country. There's a humility that's expressed with that. Today we're going to see to an infinitely greater degree how Jesus is full of power, sovereignty, and authority, and yet complete and utter humility. And that, that contrast, which seems like a contrast to us, is balanced perfectly in the person of Jesus. We're going to be in Mark chapter 11 this morning. We've been in this series called Find and Follow, and Parenthetically, I have to say we're almost finished this series. This is our 22nd sermon in the book of Mark, and we have two more to go, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and I'm kind of sad to be done because I knew that Mark was an interesting and deep uh, book for us to study, but I don't know that I realized how deep and how rich it actually is. I had a moment last week where I was studying commentaries and seeing connections that, that Mark had included in his book, and I just thought, how cool is it that I have a job where I get to study scripture and teach it to people? So thank you for allowing me that privilege, and I hope that our journey through Mark has been as rich and meaningful for you as it has been for me. Now, Mark 11 is actually taking a bit of a step backwards from where we've been the last few weeks. We've already studied in, later in Mark 11, Mark 12, 13, and even in Mark 14 already. But we're studying this story in Mark 11 because it's the story of the triumphal entry, which happens on Palm Sunday. And this is the day in which we celebrate Palm Sunday. Our kids have done a wonderful job of reading that for us already. Thank you, kids, for helping us to read God's word together. This, the scene that is pictured for us here in Mark 11 is, is the beginning of the Passover festival. So there was great excitement as Jews from all around would travel to Jerusalem. In fact, they'd be traveling up to Jerusalem. The road from Jericho to Jerusalem, which Jesus and his disciples were on, uh, has an elevation gain of 3,000 feet. So they're going up the mountain to Jerusalem. And there was all kinds of excitement. They, they would, in this Passover festival, as Bobby reminded us last week, they would look back to the Exodus event where God rescued the Israelites out of Egypt, but they would also look forward to when God would save his people once again. 
And there was extra anticipation this year because Jesus had been doing some amazing things in the last couple of years. And there was this enthusiasm around him that he was going to be this king. And he had proclaimed the kingdom of God, which is exactly what the the Jews were hoping for. Little did they know, and soon they would discover that Jesus' idea of the kingdom of God was very different than what they expected. So there is this sense of anticipation and excitement in the the air. N.T. Wright describes this kind of atmosphere like this. There is a sense of excitement that the Jewish pilgrims coming south from Galilee would have every time they went to Jerusalem for a festival, as they did several times a year. They were coming to the place where the living God had chosen to place his name and his presence. Uh, The place of hope for their future and and remembrance on their past. They were coming to celebrate the great Jewish stories of the past, which were stories of hope and freedom. They would be met with relatives and friends. They would be singing, praying, dancing, and feasting. All of this was implied by the pilgrim convoy coming up the hill from Jericho to Jerusalem. Reminds me a little bit of when I was a kid. My family every year would go to Kelowna for the August long weekend with my mom's side of the family. My mom had five siblings and including myself and my two brothers, there were 16 cousins before uh, people started getting married and adding more numbers to the family. So we we would look forward to this from the moment school ended uh, for the summer. We'd look forward to August long weekend. And when the morning came, we'd hop in the van and we'd drive up and over the Coquihalla and over the connector and into Kelowna. It seemed like it would take forever as a child to get there. Uh, The resort where we stayed had an outdoor and an indoor pool. It had a playground and a volleyball court and a putting green on the property. One of the days, lots of the guys would go golfing. Another evening, all of us would go mini golfing. And then we'd go to Dairy Queen and Grandma and Grandpa would give us a toonie that we could buy ice cream with. We'd have a church service on the weekend in one of our rooms. Every morning, we'd get up and run over to Grandma's room because she'd brought freshly baked cinnamon buns. It was just an amazing time of celebration with family and feasting and and just all kinds of excitement. It's that kind of feeling that, that the Jews would have had coming up to Jerusalem, but with all kinds of religious overtones on top of it. All kinds of anticipation for what God might do. Now, I've told you many times as we've studied this book that there are two main themes in Mark's biography of Jesus' life. There are more themes to be sure, but there are two main ones. You remember what they are. The first one is the identity of Jesus, and the second one is discipleship, what it means to follow him. In this story, we're going to get challenges on both of these things. In fact, Jesus' identity is one of the main points that we're studying in this story. Up until now, Jesus has been showing us who he is, but also trying to keep it a little bit quiet because he knew that when word got around about who he was and what he was teaching, there would be opposition that ultimately would lead to his death and he was waiting for the right time for that to happen. Here he enters into Jerusalem with a declaration of who he actually is. Up until now, we've seen Jesus is the one who calms storms and walks on water. We've seen that he multiplies bread and feeds thousands of people. He has this power over nature. Uh, We've seen him heal people of sickness and physical deformity. We've seen him forgive sins. We've seen him teach, and not just teach, but teach as one with authority. And the people were amazed and even bewildered at the kinds of things that he taught. We've seen him as one who is proclaiming a new kingdom, the coming kingdom of God. And in this story where Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, we see Jesus taking on the mantle of king. It's a coronation of sorts. Now, we see this 
communicated to us in various ways. And some of the ways are actually kind of subtle, but a Jewish person would have made the Old Testament connection right away. There's lots of Old Testament allusions uh, in this passage. And you can see a list of them on the sermon notes tab uh, if you're watching online or on our church app. Uh, One of them is this idea of Jesus sending his disciples ahead to find this colt. Now, uh, Matthew tells us it's the colt of a donkey. Otherwise, we wouldn't know if it was a donkey or a horse. But we know it's a a colt, a foal of a donkey, a a young donkey. Jesus goes, uh, sends his disciples and says, go find it. It's going to be right where I tell you it's going to be. And if people say, what are you doing? Just say the king needs it. That was a king's prerogative, was to commandeer the, the, the private possessions of citizens for his own kingly duties. Unlike other kings, Jesus says, but I'm going to give this donkey back to you. But Jesus is claiming to be king by saying, go and take this donkey and say the Lord needs it. And the people would understand, and they did. Uh, We also see uh, several times in the Old Testament where there are these kind of kingly processions when a king is being named. When King David named Solomon the king, he rode into the city on a donkey to great cheering. That's in 1 Kings chapter 1. When King Jehu is anointed as king, the people spread cloaks on the road under him, and he walked into great praise. That's in 2 Kings chapter 9. The most obvious uh, connection that Jesus is making with the Old Testament, and Mark doesn't make this as clear as the other gospel writers, but he's referring back to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where this prophecy is given. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is exactly what Jesus is fulfilling. He's riding in with righteousness, with salvation, in victory, with uh, with the victory in his right hand on on a donkey, a young donkey. He's fulfilling this to the letter. Now, palm branches, we know they are palm branches because John tells us this. Uh, Mark says they're just branches or things that people cut out of the fields and spread before Jesus create a a red carpet kind of treatment. You know, if you've watched awards shows, how these celebrities will show up in their limousines and there's a red carpet that's lined with people who are shouting and and trying to get their attention. You know, come take a selfie with me. And there's interviews happening on the red carpet. This is the kind of treatment that Jesus is getting as he heads into Jerusalem. The people are, are cheering him on. They're shouting, Hosanna, which is a Hebrew word which mixes exuberant praise to God with a prayer that God will save his people and to do so right now. So in English, we would translate that as, oh, save or save now. This is what they were, they were shouting. They shouted uh, some references to Psalm 118. If you read Psalm 118, it's full of messianic references that this is what the Messiah will do when he comes. And they're cheering Jesus along with those phrases. They're anticipating the saving that Jesus will do. Little do they know that they don't really understand what kind of saving Jesus has come to do. Jesus tells this interesting story in Mark chapter 8, verse 22 and following. It's about a blind man. This is how it reads. They came to Bethsaida and some people brought a blind man uh, and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he'd spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't go, don't even go into the village. Seems like an odd story. Did Jesus run out of power or did the man not have enough faith? 
It's actually one of these times where Jesus is brilliantly living out a parable. The very next story, he's going to ask his disciples, who do people say that I am? And the disciples will say, well, some people say you're a prophet. And Jesus looks at them and says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. This story of the blind man helps us to see that the disciples, even Peter's declaration of Jesus as the Messiah, and these people along the road cheering Jesus on, only had a partial picture of who Jesus was. They, they could see kind of the reality, but they didn't see the whole reality. They didn't see the full picture, and they wouldn't until they watched what would happen to Jesus in the next week. They thought he came to save, which he did, just not in the way that they thought he would. So two ideas that I'd like us to reflect on for the remainder of our time here today. Our main idea today is that Jesus is the humble king. Jesus is the humble king. And we're going to examine two of those words specifically. Jesus is the humble king. And then Jesus is the humble king. We're going to emphasize those two words. So first, Jesus is the humble king. Emphasis on humble. Now, it might seem odd to talk about Jesus' humility when he's actually claiming this kind of coronation as king. He's claiming this identity that he's the king. And yet in the way that he does it, he, he demonstrates this great humility. You know, the idea of a humble king seems almost oxymoronic, doesn't it? At least in the way that we think about power and leadership and, and kingship, and especially in the Roman Empire, a humble king. You know, it seems kind of like the phrase, a, a deafening silence. Uh, or maybe the, the phrase, it was my only choice. Or, or when we say, oh, I was the same difference. Or, or maybe this one, my favorite, it's an unbiased opinion. They're oxymorons. They're words that contradict each other when put right next to each other. And humble king seems to fit along that, except Jesus fulfills that description perfectly. Tim Keller says he didn't ride in on a powerful war horse the way a king would have. He was mounted on a polos, that is a colt or a small donkey. Here was Jesus Christ, the king of authoritative, miraculous power, riding into town on a steed fit for a child or a hobbit. What a choice for Jesus to come in on this kind of an animal. Jonathan Edwards says, In Jesus we find infinite majesty, yet complete humility. Perfect justice, yet boundless grace. Absolute sovereignty, yet utter submission. All sufficiency in himself, and yet entire trust and dependence on God. You know, Paul writes about this humility beautifully in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of, as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that was above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. 
Jesus demonstrated his humility in giving up the privileges of heaven in order to be born as a child placed in a feeding trough, raised by human parents, experiencing the pain and the suffering and the hardship of the human journey, being tempted in every way just like we were, and ultimately submitting to death on a cross. That's real humility. Kind of reminds me a little bit of that TV show, Undercover Boss. Have you ever seen that show? It's when a a CEO or a leader of a large company will disguise himself or herself and go undercover amongst their employees and and work alongside some of the the lower, lower people on the totem pole in the company, learning about what the company's actually like. Now, Jesus didn't have to come to earth in order to discover what it was like. He he knows us intimately. But in doing so, he demonstrated this amazing humility to walk in the same way that we do. He humbled himself to embrace his role as the suffering servant. Isaiah refers to this in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. And Mark wants us to know that Jesus takes this role on our behalf. So on one hand... We are in awe of the humility of Jesus. On the other hand, as Paul says, we're to emulate it. We are to take on this humility ourselves. I think this is true of all of us, but I think it's, it's, it's especially applicable to those of us who are leaders. Leaders in our families or in companies or in ministry. Humility ought to be the, the defining quality of a leader. Jesus shows us what true kingship looks like here. And it looks like humbly serving. Uh, There's a book I'm reading right now called The Advice Trap. Uh, Be humble, stay curious, and change the way you lead forever. And it points out that there are studies that have been done that show that people who are always giving advice, who are always sharing their opinion, and always speaking very confidently about what they believe, are actually less likable than people who are humble, who listen, who come alongside people to help them to succeed, help them to thrive. Jesus gives us this perfect example that we ought to follow. So Jesus is the humble king, but on the other side, he is the humble king, emphasis on king. And there's a real strong challenge here in this passage that if you claim to be a part of God's kingdom, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, then Jesus is your king And he demands loyalty. Now, we want to soften that and say Jesus invites loyalty. Like it's something that's optional that we can give or not. But Mark has made it pretty clear that if you're going to follow Jesus, you're all in or you're all out. Jesus demands loyalty. In fact, in Mark, we see quite a a number of different kinds of inadequate faith. Uh, The first is a self-centered faith. James and John in, in Mark 10 Uh, Ask Jesus the question, when your kingdom comes, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand? Like, can we have positions of power? You know, what's in it for me is the question of someone who is self-centered in their faith. There's fickle faith. There's faith that falls away when things get hard. In, In Mark 14, we'll see that all of the disciples scattered when Jesus is arrested. Much of the crowd that is shouting Hosanna here would days later be shouting crucify him. They were fickle in their faith. People here might say, this should make my life easier, not harder. And if it's harder, I'm out. We've also seen examples of partial faith. 
Remember the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and says, I'm following all the commandments. And Jesus says, well, what you lack is actually the fact that I'm asking you to, to go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And the man went away unable to do it. People with a partial faith say, I give Jesus full control only in certain areas of my life. There are certain things that Jesus can't touch. The invitation that Jesus gives us is to full discipleship in every area of our lives. We're invited to enter into the kingdom of God, but entering into the kingdom of God means exiting the kingdom of the world and all that it stands for, all of its values. Jesus is the only king. David Foster Wallace was giving a speech at a U.S. university in 2005, and he made these comments. He says, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice is what we worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, then you will never have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, he says, and this is an important part, on one level, we all know this already. But the insidious things about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They're default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever fully being aware that that's what you're doing. It's a battle for your allegiance. Who is your king? I've felt this in a a different kind of way in the last number of months. Uh, Jenny and I last summer bought our first home. And as you know, if you're a homeowner, there's a long list of things once you own a home that you want to do in the home. There's painting to be done. I'd love to change some flooring. I'd love to upgrade this or upgrade that. I'd love to do landscaping around the sides and bring in trees for my backyard and fix up the fence and The list goes on and on and on. And of course, there's not enough money to do all of these things. And none of those things, as David Wallace says here, are are sinful in and of themselves. But when they become primary and when I fixate on those things, which is so easy to do, I've lost my focus on the king who is asking for my full allegiance. And we can feel that way about all kinds of different things in life. And their pull on us can be subtle so that we don't even know that we're being dragged into the kingdom of the world once again. So I found, in this example for me, the antidote is to be generous and practice generosity. To be giving to the work of the kingdom of God financially, so that my focus isn't always on myself and my comfort. In Mark 8, verse 34 and 35, this is, Jesus' words. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Tim Keller writes about that verse that the deliberately chosen Greek word for life here is suke, which is where we get the word psychology. It denotes your identity, your personality, your selfhood, everything about you. 
is given over completely to the king. Do you know that the word disciple appears 269 times in the New Testament? Where the word Christian appears three times? (laughs) Now, Christian was a relatively new term. But it helps us to understand that Jesus isn't just asking us to claim the word Christian and, and call ourselves Christian. He's asking us to embrace the lifestyle of a disciple, which is a lifelong process of moving closer to Christ, being more like him, being drawn into his love, prioritizing our lives around his priorities. This is the invitation. But, but there are people, as Dallas Willard calls them, who are vampire Christians. (laughs) This is what he says about them. He says, there are people who say to Jesus, I'd like a little of your blood, please. In other words, I'd like to accept your sacrifice for my sins and have eternal life. But I don't care to be your student or to have your character. In fact, will you just excuse me while I get on with my life and I'll see you in heaven? Can we really imagine that this is an approach that Jesus finds acceptable? Someone might say, can I not get to heaven when I die without any discipleship? Perhaps you can, but you might wish to think about what your life amounts to before you die, whether you really would be comfortable for eternity in the presence of one whose company you have not found especially desirable for the few hours and days of your earthly existence. This is the invitation that Jesus is giving us. To surrender ourselves completely to the king in all areas of your life. In how you think, in how you act, in how you speak. In your habits on social media. In how you think about your identity. In how you spend your money. In what you watch on television. In how you think about your sexuality. In how you parent. In how you are a spouse. In how you are a student or a teacher or an employee or a boss. In all areas of life, Jesus is saying, you need to submit this to my leadership. Because when you do, you find joy and peace. I am the humble king, says Jesus, who is for you. So is Jesus truly your king? Two questions to ask ourselves as we close today. Number one, how can you develop humility this week? How can you emulate the humility of Jesus? And secondly, is there any area of your life that needs to be surrendered to the kingship of Jesus? Anything that is outside of his control or that you're holding back from him? What would it look like to give that to him? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are the humble king, that you model for us so well what it means to embrace humility. You came to serve, not to be served. You came to give your life as a ransom for many. By your wounds, we have been healed. And we celebrate the humility that you demonstrated. We also celebrate you and recognize you as our king. We know that you have saved us. And we thank you that you continue to save us.
in our day-to-day lives. Father, may we have the courage to surrender everything to you. And as we do so, may we be filled with such a joy and a peace as only you can give. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.